the only thing I'll add to what Drew said in introduction is that after I get my treatments, um, there's usually a period of time that I have a little bit of voice weakness. So it's smooth, but it's weak. And so if I try to uh, project my voice too much or, or change my pitch or volume too much, my voice will crack. So just know that if my voice cracks this morning, it's something I'm trying to emphasize. So write it down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I want to start in John chapter 1 the prologue of John's gospel. I'm going to put the verses up here on the screen so you can just stick your finger in John chapter 10 because we'll get there in a minute. But John chapter 1 verses, 1, or verses 11 through 13 says this. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now we've seen glimpses of how those particular verses that I just read have kind of fleshed themselves out in the first nine and a half chapters of John, but as I was reading and studying the second half of chapter 10, these verses kept coming back to my mind. Because in the second half of chapter 10, we really see John 1, 11 through 13 come to life in a story. A story with three parts that match up to these three parts of John 1, 11 to 13. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And then third, but to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So we're going to use that structure as we look at John 10, verses 22 through 42 this morning. And as we look at these verses, we're going to see this major theme come out of them. Jesus, with clarity and compassion, invites you to believe he is the Son of God. That word invites is probably too weak of a word, urges, exhorts, calls you to believe he is the Son of God. So let's start reading in verse 22 of John chapter 10. We'll read 22 through 30 here at the beginning. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So in, these first, in this first paragraph, we see this first, the first section of that passage that we read at the beginning. He came 
to his own. And the word that I want to use to refer to Jesus' words and actions in this paragraph is the word clarity. Now, the first thing I noticed when I read through these verses is that there are five contextual indicators in verses 22 and 23. Now, that's a lot. That's more than normal. And I thought it was interesting, particularly because we read about Jesus as the good shepherd in the first half of chapter 10, and we're going to read more of that kind of shepherd-sheep language in our passage, but, but he indicates that there's this new scenario going on. So let me just uh, point out these contextual indicators. The first is the Feast of Dedication is happening. You might have heard of this as Hanukkah or the Festival of Lights. This was not one of the Old Testament Jewish celebrations because it was a, a yearly eight-day celebration of the rededication of the Jewish temple that happened in 164 BC, which was three years after it had been desecrated. So in other words, this was a time of great rejoicing for God's people. Secondly, we read that this celebration took place at Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the center of God's work among his people. I was reading in Psalm 87 this week, and Psalm 87 highlights how much God's heart is for this city. We read that it was winter because the feast took place in December. And, and as we move through these contextual notes, it's almost like we start off with this wide lens, and then, and then we begin to narrow, and then we see the city of Jerusalem, and then we narrow more, and then we see Jesus walking in the temple. We find out that Jesus is here for this celebration, and he's not just anywhere in Jerusalem. He's right in the middle of it. He's walking in the temple. And then more specifically, we read that he's walking in the colonnade of Solomon. I have a picture here of the Temple Mount where you can see the temple in the center and then the arrow pointing to where the colonnade of Solomon was. This was not an uncommon place to find people congregating and teaching. Now here's the point of these five contextual notes, I believe. Jesus is intentionally placing himself right in the middle of his people, the Jewish people. John 1.11, he came to his own. Now, I would understand if you thought by this point in the Gospel of John that Jesus would be frustrated at his people for their rejection of him, but that's not at all what we're going to see in this text. Jesus knew what was in their hearts. He knew at this moment as he's walking among his people right where they're gathering, he knew that some of them wanted to kill him. And yet, he positions himself right where he knew they would be, in the middle of their celebration. Jesus' steps on his way to the cross are not at random. He puts himself right where he wants to be. And today, it's here, at the Feast of Dedication, in Jerusalem, walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, why is this important? Why is all this important that I just said? Because look at the very next word at the start of verse 24. So, that's the word, therefore. Jesus was present, and he was available, therefore they gathered around him. 
So the Jews came up and gathered around him to talk to him. Now, just because Jesus was sincere and him placing himself in the middle of his people doesn't mean that they're sincere when they come to him. And that's what we find out when we look at their question in verse 24. They say, uh, let's see here. They say, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, that's not, don't be fooled, that's not an honest question. Jesus had been very clear to them through both the things that he had said and the things that he had done about who he was up to this point, and that's exactly what he says to them. He, he responds by pointing to the fact that both his words and his works have clearly indicated who he is. Now, keep that in mind, those terms, words and works, because those are going to run like a thread throughout this entire second half of chapter 10. We'll see this idea in each of our points. But first of all, he says this, I told you, and you do not believe. So that's his words, right? He says, I, I told you. And then he points to his works, and he says, the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. So Jesus says that both his words and his works have clearly indicated who he is by this point. And in particular, he points out that his works have borne witness to his words. In other words, his works have helped prove that his words are true. And if the Jewish leaders were honest, they wouldn't have kept ignoring the works that Jesus was doing. Now, not everyone ignored Jesus' works. You remember how the passage last week ended in verses 19 to 21? There's a division that arises among the people. Remember, this is after Jesus healed the blind man, and then he talks about himself as the good shepherd. Then right at the end of this, a division arises among the people, and some of the people are saying, this man has a demon. And then other people say this. Listen to what they say. These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now, did you notice what they said? They didn't say, they did not say, these can't be the words of someone oppressed by a demon because demons don't talk like that. They said, these can't be the, wor the words of someone oppressed by a demon because a demon can't do works like that. You see, in their minds, they got it. Jesus' works proved that the words that he was saying were true. Jesus' works bore witness that his words were true. And, and while some people got it, the religious leaders did not. Now, the natural question is, well, why not? Why didn't they get it? And this is the point where Jesus brings clarity that might make some of us uncomfortable. Let's start reading in the middle of verse 25. He says, The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, we might be tempted to think, okay, okay, okay. What, what Jesus really is intending to communicate here is, you don't believe, therefore you're not among my sheep. Now, that might be true, but that's not the word that Jesus uses here. He uses a different connecting word, and he says, you don't believe because you're not among my sheep. This, this past week, my two-year-old daughter, Mackenzie, was walking through our house, and she was pushing a stroller, and she did something that two-year-olds do. She grabbed a, a woven basket 
and stuck it over her head while she was pushing this stroller. So it was in front of her face. And she was pushing it past me, and she said, Daddy, I put this box over my head so I can see. And I heard her and thought, that's not quite right. Um, but, but I know what she meant to communicate to me in that moment. What she intended to communicate was, Daddy, even though I put this basket over my head, I nevertheless can still see where I'm going. She was like looking through the little cracks in the woven part of the basket. Now those two sentences communicate very different things. I put this over my head so I can see, and I put the, never, I, even though I put this over my head, I nevertheless can see. Those are two very different sentences. And while, it, while I think it's okay for us to adjust the connecting words of a two-year-old in order to get at what they actually intended, we dare not adjust the connecting words of Jesus to mean something different than he intended. Jesus is bringing clarity to the people standing in front of him. They are not among his sheep. Being God's sheep is not about your ethnicity, nor about your standing in a religious community, nor about your connection to a religious community. Being his sheep is, in a real sense, what he's going to tell us much simpler than that. Let's read starting at verse 26. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, there's a lot that could be unpacked in these verses, but let me just make a couple observations. First of all, Jesus clarifies who his sheep are by saying first that, that his sheep hear his voice. Now, this is more than just noise going into the ear. This doesn't just mean they're around to happen to have heard what he said. Hearing Jesus' voice involves the will, the desire to know the truth. Jesus' sheep hear his voice because they want to hear his voice. They know their need. They're desperate for him. If you're not desperate, then you don't need Jesus. The song, Come Ye Sinners, says it this way, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. So Jesus' sheep hear his voice. And secondly, he says that his sheep follow him. Jesus' sheep hear him, and then they follow him. Now hear this. No one is forced kicking and screaming into God's sheepfold against their will. Jesus' sheep follow him because they desire to. Jesus' sheep have heard who he is, They've seen the works that he's done, and they have believed and voluntarily followed him. That's what he says is true about his sheep here. Now, at the same time, Jesus also says a couple other things about his sheep in this text. He says, for example, the reason you do not believe is because you are not among my sheep. He says that the Father gave sheep 
to Jesus. He says, the Father who has given them to me, so the Father gave sheep to Jesus, and this actually echoes what he said in verse 16 earlier in chapter 10, when in verse 16 he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Jesus says in this text that he knows his sheep. He says, I know them. Now, this is not merely knowing who they are, as, as if I just know who my sheep are. This is a knowledge of relationship. Now, why do I say that? Well, again, looking back into what he said earlier in chapter 10, look at verses 14 and 15. He says this, I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. Right? So, Jesus and the Father, I know the Father and the Father knows me, is not just a knowledge of who the other person is, it's a knowledge of relationship. And he says, just as that, I know my own and my own know me. So, this knowledge is a loving, purposeful pursuit of relationship. I know them, he says. He says, I give them eternal life. <clears throat> and he says, no one will snatch them out of my or the Father's hand. So to summarize, Jesus teaches with clarity here two very important truths about his sheep. And the first truth is this. Jesus is purposefully pursuing his sheep to bring into his fold sheep who were given to him by the Father and sheep whom he and the Father will guard and protect to the end. That's how I would summarize what Jesus is saying here. But he teaches a second truth as well in this text. And that's this, that Jesus' sheep willingly hear his voice and voluntarily follow him apart from being forced or coerced. Now, someone might look at those two truths and say, that doesn't make sense. Those two truths can't be true at the same time. But Jesus says in this text that they are. And notice, notice how absolutely comfortable he is in moving back and forth between these two truths about his sheep. Look at verse 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is completely comfortable seeing these two truths side by side. And he doesn't tell us that we need to understand all of the intricacies of how God's sovereignty and man's responsibility fit together with regards to being one of his sheep. He just says here that they're both true. <clears throat> so let me ask this. How should we respond to these truths? <clears throat> now, I think it's important to say here that Jesus did not reveal these truths to us for the purpose of us debating about them. Not that there's never a time to have a conversation about a theological truth, but, but that's not the reason that he gave us the truths. The reason that he revealed anything that he revealed to us is so that we would worship him. God the Father gave Jesus sheep. Jesus is pursuing his sheep. And if you have believed, hear this, it's because you were pursued. The fact that God has paid any attention to any one of us should humble us. And because he's so committed to them, he says this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
or the Father's hand. So here's how I would summarize all of this. The triune God is on a mission to rescue his sheep who will voluntarily follow him. That's how I'm trying to bring these truths together. The triune God is on a mission to rescue his sheep who will voluntarily follow him. And this should lead us to praise and worship and faith and trust. Late last summer was one of the most difficult moments of my journey with this voice disorder. I had been to lots of doctor's appointments, and there was not much hope at that point for getting any relief from the tightness that I was feeling in my voice daily. Um, I was pushing through meetings here um, at church where I often felt like my voice could, where where I often felt like I could barely be understood. I was dealing with significant anxiety each day throughout the day. And on one of my darkest days, I remember driving home from Hampton Park, and I was over here near the fire station on State Park Road. And I, w- I began thinking, like, do, do I believe all this? Do I, do I believe that God is really good? Is, is all of this worth it? And I remember just crying out through tears as loudly as I could, God, don't, don't let me go. Don't let go of me. You promised. You promised that nothing would snatch me out of your hand. Help me. And this song came to mind that I had sung many times before but now had new meaning. When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Brothers and sisters, Jesus' words are true. And I know many of you are walking through and have walked through many difficult circumstances. And every difficult physical or emotional circumstance comes with a spiritual battle as well. So let me encourage you to continue to trust. Don't give up. Don't let go of his words. No one will snatch you out of my hands. He's holding on to you, so don't let go of him. This is who Jesus is for you. Now, clarity is helpful. And Jesus, in this text, with clarity, invites you to believe that he is the Son of God. Jesus came to his own. He he pursued them. And maybe in a climax of clarity, he says to them that I and the Father are one. Now, if the Jews weren't sure who he was claiming to be before this moment, they are now, after he says, I and the Father are one. So the question is, what's their response going to be to this level of clarity? Let's keep reading, starting in verse 31. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, 
I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So we saw in the first part, Jesus came to his own. And this is the second part of those verses that we read at the beginning. But his own people did not receive him. And the word that I'm using to describe Jesus' actions and interactions in this section is the word compassion. Now, first of all, notice the bookends of this paragraph. This is why I attach this to that phrase, but his own people did not receive him. Notice verse 31. It says, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They had done this before in chapter 8. And then look at what it says at the end of this paragraph. It says, again, the Jews sought to arrest him. And this is also referenced back in chapter 8. Now, I'm not sure if this surprised you like it did me, but the fact that Jesus is still talking to these people at the beginning of verse 32 is astounding to me. We're told that they picked up stones to stone him. And if you weren't sure what that meant, that means they intend to kill him. Now, in chapter 8, when they picked up stones to stone him, Jesus miraculously disappeared. And we would think that would be a very natural response to people picking up stones. But what Jesus does here is shocking. They pick up stones to stone him, and the very next words that we read are, Jesus answered them. Jesus' compassion for his people goes on and on. His own people did not receive him, but that was not because they were without a clear and compassionate witness of, of, from God himself. They pick up stones, and Jesus is going to answer these unjust actions with further words of appeal to them. <clears throat> now, Jesus knows that it was his words that he just said that he and the Father are one, he knows that it's those words that they're reacting to. And so what he's going to do in this section of the text is he's going to put up his works in front of the people to say, again, you need to be honest about the things I'm doing, not just react to, not just react to the words I say. And then in the middle of talking about his works, he's going to give what might seem like kind of an odd argument for his words, but we're going to work through that. So the, the structure of this middle section is works, words, works. So let's work through it together. First of all, works. The Jews pick up stones to stone Jesus because he said that he and the Father are one, and he knows that. So I think almost kind of shrewdly, Jesus is, is, 
is going to put up his works in front of the people again and say, hey, listen, you need to deal with what I'm doing, not just react to what I'm saying. Look at what he says. They're picking up stones because he said he and the Father are one, and Jesus says, for which of my works are you going to stone me? And they respond essentially like, ah, forget about your works. We're going to stone you for your words, for your blasphemy, because you're making yourself equal with God. So again, he puts up his works in front of them, and they ignore his works. And it's at this point that Jesus turns to what to me initially seemed like a very kind of crazy argument. In fact, when I first began to read through this passage and study it, I printed it out on a sheet of paper and I was making some notes on it. And this is what I wrote in the margin of my notes. Um, if you can't read that, it says, what? What is this talking about? So if that was your first response when we read through this, know that that was mine too. Um, let me just try to make this as simple as possible. What Jesus is doing in verses 34 to 36 is working to build common ground with the Jewish leaders. He's affirming things that they affirm, and he's getting, so, he's, so he's building common ground with them, and then he's going to make an argument from lesser to greater. Again, see, see the compassion of Jesus in this. They, they're holding stones, and he's working to build common ground with them. So what does he say? Verse 34, he starts by pointing to words that he and those people standing in front of him both view as authoritative. Words in Psalm 82. Essentially, he says this, doesn't it, doesn't it call humans gods in your own law? So Psalm 82, 6 and 7 says this. Let me just read it so you can see it. It says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, the entirety of Psalm 82 was an attack on unjust human judges. And in this psalm, those unjust human judges are called, lowercase g, gods. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. Maybe you've heard of it before, but it's a word that can refer to God himself. It can refer to false gods. It can refer to angels at times, but the, the range of the word can even include referring to human judges as gods, those who bring the word of God to his people. So then Jesus is going to make an argument from lesser to greater. <clears throat> He's going to say, if you all, if you guys are fine to call Old Testament Israelite human judges gods because they were vehicles of God's word in particular situations, then how much more is it appropriate for me to call myself God when I am the one whom the Father sent into the world? And in the midst of that, he's going to build more common ground by saying that we both believe that Scripture can't be broken. So this is what it says in Psalm 82, and Scripture can't be broken. Now, the Net Bible summarizes it this way, which I think is helpful. If it, here's Jesus' argument, if it is permissible to call men's gods, to call men gods because they were vehicles of God's word, in a particular situation in your law, how much more is it permissible to use, the word of, to use the word God of him who is himself the word of God? So Jesus' argument is that his words are not necessarily blasphemy 
because even in these people's own law, even in their own law, they referred to humans as gods in particular situations. So, rather than reacting to him merely using the term God to refer to himself, they ought to investigate whether the things that Jesus is saying are true. In other words, if they're honest with themselves, they would understand that the word God itself is not something they should react to. They need to investigate with someone who is using the word God to refer to himself about whether the, whether the things that this person says is true. So Jesus, Jesus wants them to investigate. He wants, he's building common ground with them, and he wants them, them to investigate whether the things that he's saying about himself are true. Now, here's the question. How would they investigate whether the things that Jesus is saying is true? Well, they would have to look at his works, right? If you want to investigate about whether some, what someone says is true, you need to look at what they do and see if that backs up what they say. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He points them back to his works in verses 37 and 38. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works themselves, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So Jesus' point here is that you can't be an honest person and continue to ignore or deny his works. He says, even, even if you do not believe me, believe the works. And if his works are from God, if that's evident, when you, when you evaluate his works, if his works are from God, then, then, it gives, then it bears witness to the fact that his words are from God as well. So let me just try to summarize all of this. Jesus says in this section, my words are not inherently inconsistent with your own scriptures. Scriptures that we both believe can't be broken. So you need to investigate further. Look at my works. Look at what I've done. My works prove that I am who I say I am. And amazingly, again, Jesus is making this appeal to people who are holding stones. And he's begging them to reconsider who he is. What compassion. Are you surprised by that level of compassion? Is there anyone in your life that you think is beyond your compassion or beyond God's compassion? Are there people in your life that you've given up on, stopped praying for, you're just so frustrated at them that you can't even begin to pray for them. Jesus' actions here display an astounding level of compassion towards people that should have frustrated him. Let me encourage you this way. Don't be intimidated by those who do not believe or who push back or who refuse to see what's so clear to us. We don't have any reason to fear the questions of other people. People have, asked, people have questioned Jesus for 2,000 years. All the questions have been asked and all the questions have been answered. So we ought to be compassionate, patient, willing to listen, and gentle in our appeal for others to consider who Jesus 
is, what he's said, and what he's done. And then lastly, lastly, let me just encourage you to hold on yourself to Jesus' words and works. Parents, teach your children Jesus' words and works. Because your children one day are going to have to decide what they're going to do with Jesus. They're going to see his words and see his works, and they're going to have to decide what are they going to do with him. All of us have to decide what we are going to do with Jesus. Whether we'll hear his voice and follow him, whether we'll see his works and ignore them, or whether we'll pick up stones and say, what right do you have to call yourself God? One reason we meet together each week here for corporate worship is because we want to remind ourselves of Jesus' words and works. So your prioritizing of our time together here is not a small thing. So Jesus, in this second section, in compassion, invites you to believe he is the Son of God. Now their response is that they sought to arrest him again, but he escaped from their hands. And isn't that another work in itself, right? He, he just happened to escape again from their hands. Jesus' steps on the way to the cross are purposeful, and he will not be arrested one moment before he intends to be. And his next steps take him away from Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 40 to 42. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. So this is the third part of that initial passage that we read at the beginning, <clears throat> where it said, the third section said, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the word that I'm using to refer to Jesus' actions and interactions in this text is the word invitation. So Jesus is going to move here from the place where we would most expect to see God at work most expect to see people respond to him, the, the city of Jerusalem, to a place where we would least expect it. And you can see it here on the map, Jerusalem with the star and then the arrow pointing to the, across the Jordan River where Jesus goes. So he goes, again, from the place where we might most expect people to respond to the place where we would least expect people to respond outside of Israel. And yet, the clarity that Jesus provided earlier in our text helps us to anticipate what we see here. Remember what Jesus said in verse 27? He said, my sheep, who are his sheep? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And so Jesus here pursues sheep where John had plowed ground earlier. And the people here remember the things that John had said about him. And even here, we have the words and works emphasis. Notice what they say. They say, now John didn't do signs himself. John didn't do works like he did. But everything that John said about this man was true. So they came to Jesus. They hear his voice. They believe. And they follow him. And it's as simple as that. And isn't that the way God so often works? In unexpected ways, 
confounding the proud and showing vast mercy to the desperate, awakening spiritual life in the places that we least expect it. But what this text shows us in particular is that Jesus is compassionate towards them all. Jesus shows unending compassion towards those who ended up rejecting him and towards those who ended up accepting him. In fact, it's not long after this that Jesus continues to show his compassion to his people as he's walking toward Jerusalem for the last time. And as he's walking towards Jerusalem for the last, to enter it for the last time, he looks ahead and he sees Jerusalem and he says this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And yet you were not willing. So we saw foreshadowed in John 1, 11 through 13, our text this morning. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children, or should I say sheep, of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now this invitation to believe is not just for those who heard Jesus in this story. His invitation to believe is for you. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say that because John, the author of this gospel, said that in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the, is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Jesus appealed to listen to his words, to see his works and what they bear witness to, to hear his voice, and to follow him is for you. Jesus, with clarity and compassion, invites you to believe that he is the Son of God. And he will give you eternal life. And you will never perish. And no one will snatch you out of his hand. So believe in Jesus this morning. And if you're believing him, hold fast to his words and to his works. I want to give you just a moment to respond. However, God is at work in you. Let me just give you a few moments to talk to him. Something you need to confess, something you want to praise him for. However, God is at work let me just give you a few moments to respond and then I'll close in prayer. God, we praise you and we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us as who you are, a kind 
and compassionate, unending and compassionate God. Thank you for coming and dwelling with us. Thank you for pursuing us. Help us to respond as you would have us this morning. 